now listening to Grace City Portland. If you'd like to open your Bible to the book of Acts, chapter 2, that's where we're going to start this morning. And yeah, that's right up there. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 37. A little bit of context first off. Um, Jesus has been crucified. He was buried. And three days later, just as he predicted, has come back from the dead. No one saw it coming. Everyone thought it was a metaphor. Or just simply couldn't connect the dots. And yet Jesus literally overcame the grave, conquered sin and death, and came back to life and appeared to his disciples who were waiting for him. Changed everything. But then he said, I'm going to ascend back to the Father, back to where I came from, my heavenly home. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. You wait here because the work has only just begun, and I want to utilize you to tell the entire world of who I am and what I've done, to take the gospel around the globe. He says, but wait here because I'm going to send the promised Holy Spirit to be with you and to be in you, to empower you to be my witnesses. So don't leave Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit because that's that's just going to change everything. So there's about 120 disciples, just a little tiny band of believers who have who are now waiting in the city. They're in the upper room, and it's the day of Pentecost. And they're all together praying, and the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus promised, comes, and it's just like this insane moment. Um, There's this wind, there's this fire, they're they're praying in in unknown languages, and yet people listening can understand what they're saying. It's, It's unreal. And Peter, sort of the leader of the bunch, the apostle Peter stands up, And he proclaims to the crowd that Jesus, who you crucified, was in fact exactly who he claimed to be. Your Messiah, the Savior of the world. God who came in the flesh to bear the sins of all humanity that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God and one another. This this is the good news. And it says... In Acts chapter 2, verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of, of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Verse 40, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Next slide, please. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were gathered and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added their number day by day, those who were being saved. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Next slide, please. Today we're talking about generous, generosity. I am, we are. The God that we discover in Jesus as we look to the scriptures is a radically unfathomably generous God. He's generous. It's, it's, it's his nature. He is a generous God. When we look to Jesus, not only do we find God revealed, not only do we see the Father, but we see a God who reveals who we are in Christ. God is generous. When we talk about our identity in Jesus, we are generous likewise. Generosity is what we're talking today, talking about today. Um, and let me, just, let me just qualify that quickly by saying today's message is not about um, why you need to give more money to the church. Um, in fact, I want to say uh, as a church family, uh, guys, you are incredibly generous. Um, just as a bit of a side note, uh, we had our finance board meeting uh, earlier this week on Tuesday. We have a, a board of directors who oversee um, our church um, legally, financially, spiritually. Uh, Seth, who's the pastor there in Corvallis, is one of the board members. Adam Mabry is another finance board member. He leads an amazing church called Aletheia over in Boston. Um, Gabe Calloway and myself were, the, were the, the legal directors of the church. So we talk about money, we look at the budget, and we see how things are going. Uh, Luis is our, our CPA. And guys, we're doing really, really well. I'm so thrilled to say that we are a generous church. So I have zero motivation to somehow construct a message to like get you all to like give more money to the church because you're already doing it. We are a very, very generous church family. And I just wanna say thank you guys. Thank you for being so generous. Thank you for being so faithful. Um, it's a really, really big deal to be a financially uh, responsible and healthy church. So thank you. Um, but we do wanna talk about generosity. Um, obviously, yes, generosity applies to money, but in a, mu in a much broader sense as well. On an identity level, how does one become generous? Uh, the question that pops to my mind, if we can go to the next slide, when I read this passage, this, this description of the early church, the, the first century Acts 2 church, which we all love to kind of dream about, wouldn't it be awesome if we could just go back in time, we could be that church. Ah, I don't know, I like modern medicine. Um, but in terms of generosity, like they, they sold their belongings and they distributed as any had need. Everyone was taken care of. 
people began to like fundamentally view their possessions as like, these are not my things to cling to because like I've earned them and I'm awesome and you're not. Like, no, we are, we're family now. Something has shifted in the way I view myself and the things I have. My identity has become and is being transformed by the Holy Spirit because that's kind of what went down on that day of Pentecost. And people started to just like take care of each other. Started to exhibit uh, radical generosity. Why would they do that? Why, why would anyone do that? Have you ever done that? I mean, can you think back, if you are a Christian, and I'm not assuming that everyone would necessarily call themselves a Christian in this room. You could just be exploring, checking things out, it's fine. But if you're a Christian, do you remember when you made that decision to entrust your life and your future and your hopes and your dreams and your fears and, your, and everything to Jesus? Do you remember feeling compelled like, you know what? I've just got to go sell my iPhone, give away my laptop, uh, like re- refinance my, my home and give all of the proceeds to anyone in the family who has a need. Did anyone do that? If you did, you probably wouldn't admit it, but I didn't, I didn't, I'll confess. I did not do that. What happened that, that compelled this group of people to, to begin to view themselves, their stuff, and others around them in that way. I think it's tremendous, and it's incredibly challenging, in my opinion. I want to talk about the, the motive behind generosity. Um, next slide, please. Guilt, trade, charity, gratitude. And there's a fifth one, but I want to, I want to just hold off on that one. Guilt, Trade, charity, and gratitude. How do the people of God become generous? Um, it says in verse 37, the passage we just read in Acts 2, that they heard Peter articulate the gospel. He said, it was you who murdered your Messiah. And what happened? They were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. They felt really, really bad. Call it guilt. Uh, call it conviction. I think we, uh, I, don't know, the, I don't know how, how you feel about the word guilt. I suspect that the, uh, quite a few of us have a, have a problem with that word these days. It's kind of like a bad word if you're in therapy, like you're not ever supposed to feel guilt. And so we come up with other words like conviction or... Um, not condemnation, that's not a good word. Um, I like the word guilt because I'm slightly uncomfortable with it. It's, it's not meant to be like a good feeling. It's not meant to be this sensation that I like want to, to embrace and, and, and have more of. It says that they were cut to the heart. They felt guilty because of their sin. I think that might be a good starting point. I remember having coffee with, um, with another pastor in um, uh, Portland just a, just a few months ago. You, you guys know of Theophilus Church? Yeah, great church. Um, AJ Swoboda, cool guy. Uh, we had coffee, very unique guy. 
And uh, we sat down. I remember he said, I said, where are we going to meet? He says, let's meet at rain or shine. I thought what he was saying was, let's meet rain or shine. And I remember thinking to myself, like, that is so weird. So I, he, he just wants me to, like, figure out where we're meeting, <laughs> rain or shine. And then I eventually realized, like, oh, there's a cafe called rain or shine. So anyways, we ended up getting coffee at rain or shine. And uh, it was nice. You're talking, you know, like pastor chat. And then just before he had to go, he was lecturing at Multnomah College or wherever it is he lectures. And he said, oh, quick question. I just wanted to ask you real quick. Simon, when was the last time you were wrong about something? Like as he's packing up to go. I'm like, that's, you are a weird guy. (laughs) And what a profound question. Because what he was really asking me, Simon, when was the last time like you, you were confronted with something that was like wrong about you, about something you said, something you did? When was the last time you repented? When was the last time you were cut to the heart? When you were actually like confronted with the reality of your own personal sin to the point to where you're like, ah, I hate this feeling. I feel guilty. And what a healthy thing that is. Because that is the moment when we're then confronted with the choice to either suppress that feeling or turn to Jesus and say, help. That's the the moment when we can actually agree with God and say, yes, that's sin. Like that I should feel guilty right now. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have thought that. I certainly shouldn't have said that. And the Holy Spirit is just like, has just gouged my heart. And that's a healthy cue to say, oh gosh, I need to turn. I need to repent. Just as they repented, what they said, they said, what should we do? Brothers, what should we do? And Peter said, repent. He didn't say, well, it's all right. God knows your heart. Yes, yes, exactly. He knows your heart. Uh, That's the problem. So repent, put your faith in Jesus, be baptized, join the family, receive new life, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit who will empower you, who will actually mend your heart, give you a whole heart, write God's law on your heart and set you on your way to begin living a new life like Jesus. So I would, I would argue that as much as that word has been sort of confused and, and used and abused, because I have to say that as well, um, it's not helpful at all for people to leverage feelings of guilt in a way that's abusive or manipulative, which unfortunately happens a lot in churches these days. That's not what we're about. But we are about saying, yeah, I feel convicted of my sin and I want to call sin, I want to call sin, sin. I want to agree with God. I want to agree with the Holy Spirit and I want to repent and turn to Jesus so that he can heal me and make my heart right. So we start out with guilt. Um, But... I would say that is merely the starting point. Merely the starting point. Um, I want to refer you to Mark chapter 10, verses 21 to 22. We won't 
go there, but this is the, the story of the rich young man who came to Jesus. You may recall this, and he said, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus famously responds. He says, why do you call me good? No one's good but God. And they kind of go back and forth a little bit. And he says, well, have you kept the commandments? And the man says, look, I've done everything uh, that I'm supposed to do. I've been a good religious person. And Jesus says, all right, well, there's just one more thing. Sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, then come and follow me that you might have treasure in heaven. And it says that the young man went away disheartened because he couldn't do it. I would argue that he, he was disheartened, meaning that he, there was some sort of heart cutting going on, some sort of guilt, some sense of like, ah, like I know what I should do, but I can't do it. I can't. My identity is too bound up in all of my riches. I can't do it. And so he left disheartened. It's possible to feel guilty about our sin and to do nothing about it. It's possible to feel incredibly guilty about the life that you're living and never actually repent and simply go on disheartened, which is why guilt is only the starting point. Cutting of the heart is the starting point. We've got to go deeper. We've got to go beyond that. Number two, trade. Let's talk about trade. Um, A.K.A. spiritual bartering, or what I like to simply call manipulation. Luke chapter 6, verse 38 is a promise. Jesus said, give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Give, and it shall be given to you. Um, the context of that promise has to do with um, judging other people, condemning other people, refusing to forgive other people. So Jesus says, look, if you refuse to forgive others, then, then that's exactly what you can expect in return. Um, it's one of those promises that's like often, if not always, sort of ripped out of context. But it's a promise nonetheless. And it's a promise that oftentimes you hear used um, in what I would call sort of prosperity gospel circles. This idea that, look, God has promised to bless you. And if you do this, then you can expect this in return. And it's like this arrangement that we're meant to make with God that we can somehow like barter for spiritual goods. Like I'll give you everything, but only because I expect to get X, Y, and Z in return. And so it's, it's a trade-off. The promise is true for sure, but it's a promise that needs to be understood in right context. Um, let me show you guys this. this. This helped me immensely, and I hope it helps you too. Um, there's certain like, principles that you need to have in mind as you're engaging with Jesus in the scriptures. So as you're reading through the Bible, as we're reading through the Bible together, uh, starting tomorrow, there's certain lenses that are very, very helpful to have in place when you're beginning to make sense out of a promise as such as this one. Um, and it goes like this. The gospel, meaning like true and good religion, okay, the, the God's heart towards humanity um, can be 
summarized like this. Uh, because blank, or because God blank, I can, or am, or will, etc., etc. Conversely, is an idea that goes something more like this. If I blank, then, and you can fill in the blank there. Because God loves me, I can, or I am, or I will, etc. Because God became a human being and died for my sins, I am forgiven. Because God is just, I will fear him. Because God is faithful, I can trust him. Because God is generous, I am generous. Because I'm one of his children and I'm meant to reflect his character. Conversely, if I give, then God is obligated to give back. If I do better, then maybe God will bless me. If I try harder, then perhaps God will show me mercy. If I do all of the right things, and if my church attendance record is stellar, then on and on and on, and you can see the gross problem with that kind of thinking. But this is so oftentimes where our, our thinking slips to. This idea that if I do, then God will perform. But the gospel is because God has loved me. I love him and others in return. The gospel always begins with who God is and what he has done and what I get to do in response to all that he is and all that he's done. This might sound good initially. If I give, then God will give to me. That is religious bondage because eventually you're gonna come to the end of yourself and realize that you do not have enough and that God always outgives his children. In fact, God always outgives his children but will never ever allow himself to be manipulated by us because he's way too good for that. He's too good and faithful of a father. He doesn't allow his children to manipulate him. Now, is the promise still true that if we give, God will give back to us? Yes, this is the beauty of our God. This is where the good news gets even better. Where'd my chalk go? If, sorry, because God has given to me, I can give. And when I do, God gives back to me even more. That's the beauty. It's, it's scandalous. It's such a, it's just like it's, it bludgeons my ego 
Because it's like, not only can I not be the one to initiate salvation and God's goodness, I'm, I'm only ever on the receiving and responding end of God's grace. But even when I do so, God says, yeah, but I'm still gonna one-up you. I'm still, I'm still gonna outdo you. I'm still going to overwhelm you with just how good and generous I am. So the promise is still true, but only ever in that order. Are you guys with me? Amen. Amen. So, God will always, God will always bless and outgive his children, but he will never be manipulated by us. Number three, charity. I want to talk about this one very, very quickly. Uh, charity and the idea that um, meeting a particular felt need. So it says that they gave according to whoever had need. Everyone's needs were met. What's the difference between Christian charity and just like charity? More efficient. Yeah, right. I wish. Um, sorry, you're probably being serious. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. That would be nice if it were true. What is the difference between Christian charity? What's the difference between a Christian hamburger and just a regular hamburger? It's better, juicier, guilt-free. There's no difference. There's no difference. Guys, I know a lot of non-Christians, people who don't even believe that God exists, and they're very, very charitable. I know a lot of very charitable, non-religious, non-Christian people. That's true. Guys, embrace it. And I think maybe some of those charities are even more efficient than the church, believe it or not. Shouldn't be that way. Should not be that way. This idea that generosity coming from a, a charitable disposition, I think is a bit of a, it's a, it's a misnomer. It's, it's a misapplication of the concept of Christianity. You don't have to be a religious person to have charitable inclinations. We know that to be true. Um, charity is, is not inherently Christian. Charitable, uh, but I would say this, charity typically is reserved for those who are most deserving. So when you consider like charity in the world, what, what you'd see is charitable contributions being made for people who, um, who, who actually deserve help, like widows and orphans or, or, or people who are, who can't necessarily help themselves. Um, what you don't see, though, is charity being done for those who deserve nothing. And you certainly don't see charity, be, charity being offered to those who deserve less than nothing. Criminals who deserve to be damned. Bad people who have done atrocious things and deserve exactly what they're getting or don't got. And so you see, charity is a good thing, but I, I would make the argument that there's nothing inherently Christian about charity. You don't have to be a religious person to give. What sets just basic charity apart from the gospel, what we're talking about, a generosity that actually comes from the heart of God, is that God takes it to the next level. It says in Romans 5.10, that while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to him 
By the death of his son, Jesus commands us to love our enemies. How can he say that? Because that's exactly how our God loves. He goes beyond making charitable contributions to those who might deserve it to actually loving those who deserve condemnation. 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul's writing to a young man named Timothy, and he says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. This is Paul, one of the primary leaders of the early first century Christian church. God used him in like incredible ways wrote a good chunk of the Bible, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote these letters that, we, that Jesus has been revealed to us through. Amazing man of God. And as he's getting towards the end of his life and ministry, he starts to write all these letters instructing the generation coming up after him, what, what does it really look like to embody and live out and share the gospel? And he's like, here's one to hold on to. Here's a trustworthy saying. Don't forget it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and as for myself I'm one of the worst and God displayed his mercy in my life not because I deserved a bit of charity not because God pitied me but because it's in God's generous nature to love even his enemies I love Luke chapter 23, verses 39 to 43. This is the, that scene when Jesus was being crucified and we're told that he was hanging on a cross between two criminals. And one of the criminals who were hanging, railed at Jesus saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our wrong. I don't know what they did to get crucified, but they obviously did something and they deserved it according to his own words. In verse 41, it says, and we indeed justly for receiving the due reward of our wrong. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That is the radically generous love of God hanging between two criminals, one of them outraged, railing. You can almost hear the sarcasm in, in, his, in, his, in the tone of his voice. If you are the Christ, why don't you save yourself and save us? You're obviously not. And the other is like, are you, are you out of your mind? Like, we deserve this. This man, everyone knows. has committed no sin. And yet he's hanging just like us. Jesus, is there mercy for me? Is there a place for me in your kingdom? 
And here's a man who's clearly cut to the heart. Jesus, is there any hope for me? And I know at this point, many people would make the argument like, how, how can that be? How, how, that doesn't compute. Where, where's the justice? Where's the justice? That's, uh, that's this sort of like, um, like this get out of hell free card. You know, like the guy, the old scenario you, you've all heard. Or what about the guy who's like on death row and he's about to be sentenced to death and he spent his whole life hurting innocent people. And now with his dying breath, he says a prayer. And what, he gets to go to heaven? Where, how is that fair? My response is it's not fair at all. And thank God. Because the very, very hard truth that we find revealed to us in scripture is that we're all like those criminals hanging on a cross. We killed the Messiah. My sin nailed him on that cross. I deserve hell. That is so, that's hard to even like say out loud. So you guys know. But that's the generous love of God. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He extends grace instead. And I would also add, so what about the criminal who in his dying breath cries out to Jesus? Where's justice? Where's justice? He's getting crucified. And I would say that oftentimes the very justice of God is administered in real life terms that we might, that we might be confronted with the awful reality of our sins so that we might be cut to the heart and turn to Jesus and experience his utterly undeserved mercy and grace. That, by the way, is, is where we get gratitude. That's gratitude. Ephesians 1, verses 7 to 8 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. I love that word, lavished. He lavishes his grace upon us. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Guys, when you have been on the receiving end of God's lavish grace, it produces something inside of you called gratitude. I was once a criminal condemned to death to spend an eternity cut off from my God. And yet when I cried out, when I turned to him and cried out, is there room for me in your kingdom? Clearly I deserve what I'm getting, but is there mercy left for you, left for me in yours? And he says, yes, today you will be with me in paradise. I've experienced that. I remember one time I was driving home. I'd been partying all night. This was before I was a Christian. And I wrecked my car and I flew off the side of the freeway and I dove down into a ravine and I leapt out of the car thinking for sure it was gonna like blow up like it does in the movies. 
and, and I ended up walking home. It took me hours walking down the freeway, and I was too scared to like call like the police or the, the CHP, uh, California Highway Patrol, because I was like, oh, what if they, like, I could get a DUI? Like, I would rather just walk home all night. So I did. And that's a, that's a long, long walk, a lot of time to think about how I was living my life and where I'd be if I had died. And I had concluded that if God was real, and at that point I, I wasn't entirely convinced, but I thought if God was real, I would, I would, I'm, I'm absolutely sure I would not be in his kingdom right now. I would be in hell. I would be in hell. And that scared me to death. I couldn't, I just, I just didn't want to deal with that. And I walked home disheartened. About a year later, I actually responded to that, that conviction. Um, and I gave my life to Jesus. But when I did, I realized that I was a criminal receiving grace. And all I wanted to do was to show this generous God of mine how grateful I truly was. And that's called gratitude, my friends. Um, it produces a generosity that, that flows from a, a heart level. It's not just something that I ought to do. You know, in Romans 7, the Apostle Paul, he talks about, you know, I, the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I end up doing. And he sort of, it's this very sort of poetic way of saying, like, look, I'm just, I'm a wreck. Like, the, I'm, I know what I'm supposed to do. I know what I ought to do, but just, uh, like, I'm just, it's just hard. And then he ends by saying, what a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this? Thanks be to God who delivers me in Jesus Christ. And what he's talking about is a God who, who engages with us, not just on here's some rules to apply. Good luck. Do better. He says, no, your problem is something much, much deeper inside. It's your very identity is wrapped up in this mess. And I need to get a hold of your hearts. Without me, you're condemned. But turn to me, and I'll make you new. And a gratitude begins to flow out of a human heart that results in a, in a generosity like in Acts chapter 2. But there's an even more excellent way. There's something better than gratitude. Because guys, let me say this. If we stop with gratitude... Gratitude can very easily and often does relapse to guilt. If all you have is gratitude, eventually there will come a moment where you think to yourself, gosh, am I, am I grateful enough? Because I've not given a lot lately and I'm wondering, like, am I still in touch with just how much I've been forgiven? And that gratitude can, can easily become a kind of emotion that, that it's, it's hard to sustain. I think we should but I think God gives us something even more fundamental that affects our identity, that compels us to be generous like our Father is generous, and that is love. Love. Next slide, please. Perhaps my very, very favorite story in all of Scripture, and then we'll end. Mark chapter 14, verses 3 to 9. And while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, who was reclining at table, and a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? 
For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor charity. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. Whenever you want to, you can and should do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. What Jesus is saying, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, this will be the quintessential sermon illustration. If you want to understand who I am and what I'm doing and what what the implications are on the human heart, remember this woman. Remember this woman. We don't even know her name. Although I I have a guess. I have a guess who it is. The woman who came and anointed the feet of the beautiful one. That is love. She wasn't doing anything to somehow repay Jesus for something. It certainly wasn't charity, not in this case. I don't see any signs even of like a guilty conscience. Gratitude perhaps, but more than that, This was a woman who had been captivated by the love of God in Christ. What she has done for me is a beautiful thing. And don't you dare take anything away from it. When we experience the generosity of our God, when we are lavished in his love, we begin to experience A love that generates a generosity in us that can only be likened to the love and generosity of God himself. After all, John 3.16 says that God so, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave his only begotten son, his most valued treasure in all of eternity. So that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will receive everlasting life because God so loved. We are rebels who have have been lavished in God's grace. We are criminals who have been overcome by the unfathomable weight of God's mercy and love. And therefore, we lavish others. We lavish with our time. We lavish with our money. We lavish others with our patience. We're generous with our words. Our words, arguably one of the most precious things that we could ever give or one of the most harmful things we could ever do to another. Our words. We're generous with our words. We are generous with our patience. We are generous with our respect. We're generous with our gentleness. We're generous with our homes, our space, our talents, our time. We lavish others with honor. We lavish others with prayer. We're generous with our friendship, arguably one of the greatest needs in our city. It's just like good old-fashioned friendship. I have time for you. 
I care about you. I'm willing to sit and listen to you, even though like half of what you're saying just annoys me to no end. I'll listen to you because no one else has in a long time. We lavish people with forgiveness. We lavish people with second, third, fourth, fifth, and 1,000th chances because that's how generous our God is. We lavish people with our mercy and we lavish people with our love because we have met the beautiful one. We've tasted his goodness. When we should have been on our way to hell on a cross, he was praying for us. Father, forgive them, suffering for us, dying for us, and welcoming us into his kingdom, his family, whose supreme ethic is love. And so, yes, we, like him, are generous because our hearts have been filled with his love and our love and our most beautiful admiration is for the beautiful one, our Father and our generous God. Can we stand together, please?